All right. Well, I'm going to get us started um, for purposes of the recording. Uh, just a reminder that if you're listening to this via the podcast, uh, right in the podcast description, you can find a link for the PDF of the handout for tonight. So we're going to finish up week one. We're going to start week two. I have no idea if we're going to finish it. Um, but you'll find the week two handout in the, uh, in the link in the description of the podcast. And so why don't I um, start us off with prayer. And also want to let you know that if you need a Bible, uh, Russ has wonderfully uh, gotten us some stacks of Bibles. So if you need a Bible, if you don't have a Bible with you tonight, you can grab uh, one of the copies there that Grace provides. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take that Bible home as our gift to you. Um, so let me start with a word of prayer. Father God, as, um, as you know, and, and now I, I reflect with these friends uh, as we're gathered around here tonight, um, earlier this afternoon, just studying Romans 9 and really struck Father when Paul says, what, what should we say then? Is, is God just? And what just overwhelmed with this idea that we as humans would, would even come to study you, to think on you, um, this transcendent, ineffable, God-only wise and just the kind of reverence and awe and uh, a right kind of the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. And, and so, God, we come um, aware that the writer of the Ecclesiastes says, when you enter the house of the Lord, what, should you even talk? You just be silent. I'm just struck by that. We, we want to be, we're, we're humbled, Father, by who you are, and, and yet in the midst of all of that, just overjoyed that you have chosen to reveal who you are. And so do that by the power of your spirit, would you, tonight? Uh, we come with no swagger. Uh, we, we seek to be emptied of all arrogance and judgment and to just see you for who you are and to see your word for what it is and that you would use this time together to build our confidence. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Can anyone remember last week where we, uh, close to the end, we had a definition? And if you wrote it down in your notes, you can certainly look at your notes. This is an open book quiz. Um, a, what, what we concluded as a definition for theology when we said, what is theology? We, we got to a conclusion of one little sentence. Can anyone remember what that was? And you're, you're both right. So Eric said theology is a study of God. And yes, then we, we dug into that a little bit more. And, and Paul is right. It's the application of Scripture by persons to every area of life. And then we gave some reasons. Uh, at the end there, reasons for the study of systematic theology. One, we study for God's glory. We looked at Philippians 1 and, and uh, Ephesians 3. Uh, we... We study uh, for individual sanctification and growth. We study systematic theology because doctrine matters. And then uh, we came right up on key fi features of doing systematic theology, and then we were done. And so that's where we're going to pick up. Uh, so in your week one handout, and if you didn't get a handout, there's week one handouts and week two handouts on the table. And there's a schedule of all of our sessions. And so uh, next week, we don't have core seminar. I know it's like we just started and already we don't have one. Aww. So I'm sorry. Uh, we're we're going to be out of state. Susan and I and actually all the pastors, the LaCroix and the Hills, are going to the Gospel Coalition National Conference on Sunday right after the service. And so um, we'll be there through Thursday uh, soaking in. Uh, the, the theme this year is Hope in the Wilderness. So it's on the book of Exodus. So looking forward to that. So doing systematic theology. Uh, one, it is uh, key features of systematic theology. It is biblically grounded, which we talked about uh, in 
one sense already, systematic theology should have a few key features. First, it should be biblically grounded. Ultimately, every worldview appeals to a rule, a standard, a final court of appeals when determining what is true. When it comes to matters of theological questions, the Bible is our rule. While that's the position of this class, we know that many would disagree with this claim. Even Roman Catholicism, for example, argues that the teaching of the church carries an authority at least on par, if not at some times above, the Bible's own authority. The modernist among us would elevate reason over revelation. And so revelation, we're just talking about the scriptures, right? The revelation of God in the Bible. They would argue, a modernist would argue, that the proper ground for believing a thing is not that the Bible or a certain tradition contains it, but that reason and conscience commend it. So the modernist would say, it's seated in who I am, really, and what I'm determining. The postmodernist denies the very ability to make absolute truth claims. There is no capital A author, if you will, who gives meaning and order to the world. Thus, there is no one story that defines our existence, no biblical meta-narrative of creation to fall, to redemption, to new creation. That's those four words, Eric, that make up all of the scriptures. Rather, each of us are left with our own languages, our own experiences, our equally viable versions of the truth. For the postmodernist, it is nonsensical to appeal to universal truths or the rightness of one religion over another. But the teaching of this church, of Grace Church, is that the Bible alone is the inspired and inerrant and infallible word of God, finally and fully authoritative for faith and life. We're going to get in just a few moments to what inerrant and infallible mean and why they're important. So, first, systematic theology needs to be biblically grounded. Second, yes, Brian. Sorry. Um, so, just briefly talk about revelation versus reason. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so you, your sermon last Sunday was, um, I think you spent most of the, I think you spent most of the sermon, if I'm correct, basically talking about the, um, the logic of equivocation, where not everybody that is born of Israel is the son of Israel is Israel where equivocation is, where you use the same word, but it has two different meanings. And then you went back and went through Genesis and talked about, and you did all of that. And so um, my question here is, is um, well, let me back up really quick. I'm sorry. I meant to like a man Last week, you talked about argumentation a little bit. You, you just touched on it. That we should, have good argu- that we should be able to argument. Yeah. To have good arguments with one another, yeah. What is an argument? But I think you would agree that Romans 9, and most of Romans, is argument, right? Because he uses argumentation language. He, he, talk, he has propositions and conclusions, or, yeah, propositions mm-hmm. and conclusions. Mm-hmm. He uses words like for, if, then, because, therefore, all that type of thing. So I guess, um, well, so what my question is, I guess, is, is like... Um, uh, Paul is arguing in Romans 9 mm-hmm. and he talks about not everybody that's Israel a born of, is a son of Israel is Israel but then he goes back and talks about Abraham and he refers you back to Genesis 18 so um, the, the reason why I'm bringing this up is if you look at his logical argument there and what he's trying to prove the evidence that he's using, for example, with Abraham is not commensurate with his claim about not all Israel is Israel, because he should just be starting with Jacob. And so the question is, is is he is there some revelation that he's trying to do about and bring in the argument about Abraham, which precedes and is really unrelated to the argument about Israel? Or like what's the relationship that you think that is proper between Revelation and reason, because 
if you're using reason and you're trying to analyze Paul's argument in Romans 9, you'd say, well, these, his support for his evidence, going back to Abraham, really has nothing to do with his argument about not everybody that's of Israel is Israel. I do. I think I would disagree. I think I would disagree with you that those things aren't connected, and that he isn't drawing some proper lines of evidence. Um, so that that would be one thing. I, I do think that there is. I, I think his logic coheres, and I think his argument coheres. Um, re- regarding your question on, if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, so when I'm pointing out a modernist or postmodernist claims versus a Christian worldview, for, for kind of lack for, of a better phrase. Um, I'm just saying it's not that reason or the intellect isn't operative in the Christian worldview. It's just where is kind of full and final authority seated. And for the Christian, it's seated in the word of God. So I would say it's the revelation that's authoritative, not us authoritative over the revelation. Whereas I think a modernist thinking would say it's the reason it's reason that's authoritative. That's, that's where it's my thinking something through and deciding something. So I think that's what I'm just trying to make a claim that that's a difference in those worldviews. Does that, does that make sense? And is, it, is that the question you're asking? I guess, so, so like, like I was asking, um, Romans 9, most of Romans is logical argumentation. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I think, yeah, I, no, I think those would be synonymous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think Paul's using reason. It, but again, ultimately, as we're going to see this week, it's going to be um, when we get into verses 14 and following, it is even when we can't make, so, and then maybe we can talk afterwards if you have further questions on this. We'll keep moving along. But um, what I hope to show a little bit on Sunday is that even when two strands of thought and two propositions that Paul presents seem in contention and are a paradox. He's, he's willing to see the end of reason in answering it. So he's willing to just leave those lay in, in essence, unresolved that he isn't going to make either philosophical or intellectual conclusions. And he's going to leave them, in that paradox, and, he, and he's quite willing to do that because God is God. He's, he's okay with that. Um, so that I think it, it's an example, it seems to me it's an example where revelation and who God is is trumping my ability to reason this through. At least, and I mean that, my ability. And I've read a number of commentators and they didn't answer all my questions this week. And, um, and, and I think there are just, I think there's a couple questions in Romans that are un, in Romans nine fourteen and twenty nine that are unanswerable. Um, reason fails because he's God. Um, but let's if, if you want to talk more after Brian, let's absolutely let's do that. So biblically grounded, it's also historically informed. Our systematic theology should be historically informed. That's not to say that the Bible takes a back seat to historical traditions, but it is to say that we don't do theology in a vacuum. We stand on the shoulders of giants. History has much to teach us, and modern-day evangelicals often forget this. So don't, um, I I think I've said this to you before, Uh, C.S. Lewis calls this, we are, we're chronological snobs. We we think our generation is the generation that's figured it all out. Like, we, we are we have all of the answers. We're the, we're the ultimate source of truth and knowledge and discovery. And, and uh, as, as uh, what's, what's Jeff Goldblum's character's name in Jurassic Park, Nehemiah? Ian, as Ian Malcolm says, we, we stood on the shoulders of giants. And we didn't ask, should we do this? We just did it. <laughs> right? We stand on the shoulders of theological giants. And so it... it it is a benefit to us to read those who came before. It's why I love dead guys and dead women, right? We, we should be reading them um, because we do not hold the source of all knowledge. Um, our, third, our systematic theology should be contextualized. We don't do systematic theology in a sterile lab. It's anything but cold, 
dry, and clinical. Read over Paul's example in Athens from Acts 17, for example. We're to take the Bible's teaching and apply it to the pressing issues of our day. That's Paul in the Areopagus. What does it mean to be male and female? Is there such a thing as truth? How do we define life? This has consequences for everything from what we think of co-ed dorms to genetic engineering. Lastly, our systematic theology should and must be lived out. Dead orthodoxy is not true orthodoxy. Remember the church in Sardis from Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. The Apostle John wrote, You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains. They were condemned for not living out the living word that they had received. So if you walk out of this class, like we said last week, and your affections aren't stirred, your soul encouraged, and your life changed, you're not doing systematic theology no matter how much head knowledge you have. True theology is living theology. It should strengthen our faith and bring a skip to our step, right? Like we should be excited and encouraged and can't wait to share with someone else what we've learned about God in the Bible. And it's important to know that we are dependent on God by his spirit to do this in us. That's how it's living and active. And so it is often, I've told you this as well, but it bears repeating it. I think about um, the very beginning of the story and it says that the spirit of God was hovering over the void of the deep of the waters, right? And, and, and we know uh, from the Psalms that, that wisdom, which I think in those contexts and in Proverbs is speaking of Jesus, that he was there at the very creation. So this, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit were there active in taking something that was formless and void and making it into a reality. And it is that same Spirit that is has inspired this word, right? It's the spirit operating through men that wrote the word of God. And so when I come to this book, it's the spirit. I I like getting close to it sometimes just to remind myself like the spirit is still hovering over this word. And I I want him, and in the Holy Spirit, the word tells us takes joy in revealing Jesus and making him known to us. So when I come to the word, it's like, okay, spirit, do your work, shine a light. It's, you're, you know, the word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Shine on this and make this living as I study it now. And, and so this morning that happened again. There was two places. Yeah, and it's good to, I've started trying to journal again. I'm a, I'm a horrible on again, off again journaler and just trying to write down something that I learned from the word that morning. And this morning it was, it was the story of Manasseh. Um, do you remember the story of Manasseh, one of the kings of, of Israel who, in, in, in chapter 33, it's the first nine verses, it's, um, it's just like this description of his absolute vile wickedness. Like, I mean, he's offering his children up on sacrifice as sacrifices on altars. And, and, then, and then it's when he gets taken captive by a foreign power, he, he's humbled, he calls out to Yahweh, and, and, and says, please, you know, we don't, know, we don't have his prayer. My, my sense is, please forgive me. And it says in the text, and Yahweh heard his prayer. And like his life gets turned around and he gets this blessing. And I, I like push, literally put back from my chair like, what? <laughs> this, this is amazing. It doesn't matter how far gone you are. You're not beyond the grace of God. What a beautiful reminder to me. <laughs> and then for me to think, and why do you think you're better than Manasseh, Matthew? You're not. The Spirit revealed those things. So we want to make sure that any systematic theology that we do is one, biblically grounded, historically informed, contextualized into our context here in Salida, and lived out in our lives. Any questions? Oh, here we go. On yes. Historically informed. Yes. Is that, and that kind of goes into the context too. So when we read this, do we read it in the context of 
that time frame and apply it to today's time frame? Because if you read it from today's perspective, you miss the whole thing. Yeah, I, I think what you're talking about is like um, interpretation of the scriptures themselves. That absolutely, yes. In, in this sense, I'm more speaking to let's not forget the long lineage of those who have done who have done systematic theology in particular before us so don't just read um you know i didn't bring it with me tonight but i brought john frames systematic i think he published that somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 years ago don't just read frame read lewis burkoff who who published i think in like the 50s or 60s and then go back into those who were doing systematic theology in the 1800s go back to jonathan edwards who was doing systematic theology so read broadly historically conclusions that men and women have come to as they've studied the scriptures that's more what i'm speaking oh. yeah yep good question eric any other questions yes brian um since you lean presbyterian you have <laughs> <laughs> I have great affection, yeah, yes. I've I've not read it in total, brother. So I, I couldn't comment. I, if there's something specific maybe, but yeah, I've only dipped in here and there to Hodge. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um all right, let's get into a doctrine of the word. So that's what I wanted to end with last week and what week two is mainly concerned with. Um, and this is our first topic of the class, a doctrine of the word, uh, which, which would make sense, right? If we're saying that it is the application of scripture by persons to absolutely every area of our lives, we should first make sure that we understand some things and establish some things about the scriptures because everything else is gonna flow from the Bible. Here we're going to see why we believe that the Bible alone, or sola scriptura, as the Reformers put it, is to be our ultimate authority when it comes to the Christian faith. So throughout our course, we're going to maintain two presuppositions. One, there is a God, triune, both sovereign and personal, uh, transcendent and imminent. And two, he speaks or reveals himself to us. So those are our two presuppositions. So there's... <clears throat> One way that theologians will talk about this is presuppositional theology. And so it's this idea that it's okay for us when we're making, like, you know, kind of in the realm of apologetics, when we're making arguments to other people or to each other or to the watching world, just like they will have, whether they will admit them or not, they will have certain presuppositions about how they see the world. And a presupposition is just something that you're assuming to be true, right? And so they'll have certain presuppositions. So we too, as believers, now there could be things that we could do to prove why we think there's a God um, and why he's revealed himself to us and what, how we get to those conclusions. But it's also just okay to say, those are our presuppositions. We're going into systematic theology, believing there's a God, that he's triune, that he's sovereign, that he's personal, and that that God has revealed himself to us in this book. It's not a cop-out. It's not wrong to do that, um, almost every person arguing a particular worldview has presuppositions. Christian. Yes. So, and you even used the term again. Is there a aim or any particular difference between presuppositions and, and worldview? I mean, we hear the thought so much about a Christian worldview, and most people won't admit or know their worldview. Uh, so, does that? become synonymous with presuppositions or would you separate them? I, I would separate them. I, I would think that how I would say it, Bruce, is, um, so the question is, are, are um, presuppositions synonymous with like saying a Christian worldview? No, I would say that as a Christian, these are two presuppositions that I have about how I see the world. Um, and so I think it's okay, like if, if we were gonna have a debate, for example, Bruce, it would be okay to just say, Listen, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time defending that there's a God. That's a presupposition for me. Or I'm not going to defend, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time that he revealed himself to us in his word. That could be another debate. Like we're debating maybe some other issues. I would say those are my presuppositions. That's where I'm beginning from instead of let's go back one step further. Now you could do that, but I also think it's okay to have certain presuppositions. Um, does, that, does that answer the question, Bruce? Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so, and as an example, uh, for the empiricist, presuppositions could be that our world is a closed box. We can only know what we can touch, taste, feel, and that our senses are reliable guides. For the rationalist, certain presuppositions would be that we're given a set of innate ideas in the mind, either because we're born with them or because the soul pre-existed, and knowledge comes as we apply reason to those ideas. Those would be presuppositions that they would have. For us as Christians, um, I, I love a way to put my two presuppositions together in a title by Francis Schaeffer is he is there and he is not silent. An excellent, excellent little book. Um, read all the Francis Schaeffer you can. <laughs> that would be my advice to you. Um, that God both exists and speaks is in fact one of the primary ways the Bible distinguishes the true God from all other false gods. Turn to, okay, I forgot I was going to do this. Uh, turn to First Kings. Because we just have to... We have to see this in action. 18, sorry. Yeah, 1 Kings 18. Uh, let's start in... We're kind of jumping into the middle of the story here in chapter 18, but like verse 17, when, when Ahab saw... <clears throat> Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, the one ruining Israel? He replied, I have not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have because you have abandoned Yahweh's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of Yahweh, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of Yahweh. The God who answers with fire, he is God. All the people answered, sounds like a good idea. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, since you are so numerous, and there's a lot of sarcasm, I think, in this story, so I'm going I'm to give some tone here. Since you are so numerous, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. Then call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. You have firsties. So they took the bull that he gave them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly, for he's a god. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away. Maybe he's out on the road. Maybe he's sleeping and will wake up. And he slaps his knee, right, when he says it. They shouted loudly. They cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. So all the people approached him. Then he repaired the, the Lord's altar, Yahweh's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of Yahweh had come saying, Israel will be your name. And he built an altar with the stones in the name of Yahweh. Then he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold about four gallons. Next, he arranged the wood, cut up the bull and placed it on the wood. He said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burned and on the wood. Then he said a second time and they did it a second time. And then he said a third time and they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the water. He even filled the trench with water. At the time for offering the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant, and that at your word I have done all these things. 
Answer me, Yahweh. Answer me so that this people will know that you, Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then Yahweh's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Then Elijah ordered them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let even one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the Wadi Kishon and slaughtered them there. Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rainstorm. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel. He bent down on the ground and put his face between his knees. Then he said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea. And he went up, looked, and said, there's nothing. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. On the seventh time, he reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, get your chariot ready and go down so the rain doesn't stop you. In a little while, the sky grew dark with clouds and wind and there was a downpour. So Ahab got in his chariot and went to Jezreel. The power of Yahweh was on Elijah and he tucked his mantle under his belt and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is the word of God. He's a real God. <laughs> That's a real event. I love verse 32. He built an altar with the stones in the name of Yahweh. Right? Like there's just this awareness of the reality that Yahweh is God. He's just he's operating with that. And it's a real place. And it's a real place. Yes, exactly. Now, when we say the word of God, let's be clear, we don't merely mean the Bible. The Bible, is, the Bible is simply the word of God written. The word of God would include the power by which God brings all things to pass according to the counsel of his will, including Ephesians 1.11, including creation, Genesis 1.3, John 1.3. It's his personal presence with his creatures. Paul writes in Romans 10 that the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. God's word reveals him. Therefore, to obey God's word is to obey God. To despise his word is to despise him, Isaiah 66, 2. We could even say that God's word or speech is one of his attributes. He's a speaking God. That doesn't mean the Bible is necessary to his being, (coughs) as if we didn't have that, that he wouldn't, that he'd somehow be less God, but communication is necessary. There is fellowship within the Godhead. In the same way that God didn't have to create to be creative, he didn't have to speak to us in order to prove he's communicative. We take this for granted, but speech is God's free gift to us. And one of the key forms that Revelation takes is, in fact, Scripture. God's special revelation committed to writing. So we start with the presuppositions that one, there is a God. We see him crushing prophets of Baal and two, that he speaks or reveals himself to us. But how do we know that the Bible is God's authoritative word to his people? Well, we listen to what it tells us about itself. This could almost be another presupposition that the Bible is self-authenticating, that we're okay with that. We're okay that the things that the Bible says about itself are trustworthy and true. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture, all scripture is inspired or, or literally breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So be okay with all of those things in your life. <laughs> teaching, rebuking correcting, training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, for every good work. That sounds like our definition of systematic theology, doesn't it? Taking scripture, scripture by persons applied to every area of life, complete, equipped for every good work. We discover that the idea of the Bible as God's authoritative word pervades the entire scriptures. It's not isolated merely to one or two verses, just like in Timothy here. 
Going back to the Old Testament, we see that the faith of ancient Israel was based on the authority of the written word. We need to look no further than the Ten Commandments, which God penned himself on two stone tablets. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 5.22, Yahweh spoke these commands in a loud voice to your entire assembly from the fire, cloud, and total darkness on the mountain. He added nothing more. He wrote them. He wrote them on two stone tablets, and he gave them to me. In entering into a covenant relationship with Israel, God gave the people his word. And as redemptive history unfolds, God consistently brings his people back to his covenantal word. You could read Deuteronomy 32 to see that. And where is the word put? It's put in the most sacred place in the Ark of the Covenant because it came directly from God. The rest of Moses' writing and the later prophetic writings were always regarded as no less divine, no less truly words of God than the words which God had written with his very own finger. The fact that man penned the words never affected the reality that their authority and inspiration were divine. You can see Romans 3, 2, Acts 4, 25, 28, 25, Hebrews 3, 7, and 10, 15 for proof of that fact. Further, as we read through the prophetic writings, we hear a phrase over and over again. Can you think of what it is when you, when you hear the prophets? Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. For thus saith Yahweh. Over and over again. This was not a word from the prophet himself, but from the prophet and was equivalent to God speaking directly to his people through the prophets. We see this in that the New Testament recognizes the authority of Old Testament writings. The New Testament shares this same testimony of the Old Testament's divine authority. Jesus himself treated the Old Testament scriptures as absolutely authoritative. In the Sermon on the Mount, we read that Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, which was just a shorthand way of speaking of all of the Old Testament right by a rabbi. He didn't come to correct them, but to fulfill them, Matthew 5, 17. He not only has a high view of himself, but clearly a high view of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus treated arguments from Old Testament scripture as having the final say. In John 10, 35, he states that the scripture cannot be broken, referring to the Old Testament. When Jesus says it is written, the discussion is over in those arguments. A good example of this is when he quotes Deuteronomy to the devil himself when being tempted in the desert. Further, Jesus himself abided by the scriptures. We're told that he lived a perfect life according to the Old Testament scriptures. According to his own testimony, even his death on the cross happened because everything that was written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled, Luke 24, 44. And the New Testament not only recognizes the authority of the Old Testament, but recognizes itself as an authority on par with the Old Testament. It doesn't just justify, testify to the authority of the Old Testament, but recognizes its own. So in Matthew 28, Jesus spoke to the disciples after his resurrection and seems to anoint them, particularly to complete his teaching. In John 14 through 16, Jesus promises to send the disciples the Holy Spirit who will remind them of what he has taught them over the course of his ministry and lead them into all truth, including teaching that Jesus did not give during his earthly ministry. Right? So it's, it's not just the teaching that he gave that they were then testifying to by the power of the Holy Spirit. They were then inspired further by the Spirit to write more. The disciples understood this as well. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says of Paul's writings, quote, he speaks about these things in all of his letters. There are some things hard to understand in them. Oh boy, howdy, Romans 9.14 to 29. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. So Peter is recognizing that Paul's writing was part of the scriptures that were recognized as the scriptures. In 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul says, for the scripture says, and then quotes Deuteronomy in the gospel of Luke, which was not written by an apostle, but was clearly approved and affirmed by those apostles who were still alive. The unmistakable point is this. The Old Testament and the New Testament attest to the scriptures as God's authoritative revelation to his people. The Bible comes to us in a unified package that leads to Jesus, which means we don't get to pick and choose what we like. Can you think of a president who did that? 
Jefferson. Jefferson. What did he do, Bruce? He cut uh, pages out that were Christ's words, I think it was. Yeah, and anything well, that... Allegedly, he's also trying to study contrast to the Koran. Yeah, I think he That's considered himself a deist, right? Isn't that... I'm, I'm not a very good historian, but I think considered himself a deist. Um, I'm thinking that way, yeah. But it's amazing how much they knew scripture, whether it was Franklin or <laughs> Jefferson or anybody. Yeah. If it's God's word, if it's God's word, we don't stand above it, determining what we will and will not accept, but we stand underneath it as those called to humbly submit ourselves to it. So, that's week one. Any questions at this point? All right, week two. The doctrine of the word continued. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The question is, can we have confidence in what the Bible says? How do we know that the Bible is God's word and not just clever myths written by some smart men? If the Bible is true, why does it sometimes seem hard to understand? We're going to continue looking at God's word, what it is, why we can trust it, and how it transforms our lives. Turn with me to Psalm 119, please. <coughs> Psalm 119. I'm a, I'm a simple man. If I look at it over, you know, 2,000 years of Bible history <laughs> written by, you know, 40, 50 different people, a dozen people, and they all tell, tell a very similar story, whether it's through oral tradition or whatever, but to have the, you know, the last book tie into the first book and mirror, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. there, there's no way that 15 of us could write a story and it would make sense. Yeah, and I, and I think those are some some good arguments. And, and, and ultimately, it's not, it's not wrong also to say, and, and I'm actually going to argue this, part, part of how I can trust the Bible, it, like, like you're saying, it's okay to say I'm trusting it because I have a sense that I believe is given to me by the Holy Spirit that this book is true. It makes the most sense about the world that I see, the life that I live, and the lives of those that are part of my life, the, the things that they face and what they go through. And it just makes the most sense. That, that's not a knock. I mean, a Muslim would say similarly to you about the Quran. Right? I mean, other holy books. A Mormon would say the same about the Book of Mormon. They would have arguments for why they believe that those things were given to Joseph Smith and why they're true. So I think, I think it's, it's good for us. And, and what, what I want to do is build your guys' confidence. So when people ask, um, I think it's not uncommon to get a question like, well, how do you know that this is the Bible? Or, or, you know, you at Grace Church don't believe that the Apocrypha is part of the Bible, but the Catholics do. Why is that? Who's right? Who's wrong? How, how can I know that this is actually, like, it is actually truth? Because it says the sun rises, but we know the sun doesn't rise. We spin around the sun while we're spinning, so the sun doesn't rise. So the Bible doesn't seem true, because it's wrong about that we should have questions. We should have answers to those kinds of questions. And I want to try and supply some of those. So you have like a basic confidence that, that you don't have to have, but there are other pillars that, that you can stand on and have confidence for why you can believe this. But here's, here's part of that. Here's some of that self-attestation. And I, I love Psalm 119, right? It's this full-throated psalm about the scripture itself, written in an acrostic, so there's all these sections so this is um, that go in line with the Hebrew alphabet. So every, every word in this section of Psalm 119 begins with um, the Hebrew alphabet letter mem. So some, some of your Bibles might actually have mem 
next to this little section as it breaks it out in those sections. That's what that is. That's a part of the Hebrew alphabet. How I love... What verse? Uh, sorry, 97. I'm sorry. 97. Thank you, Russ. <laughs> Psalm 97. I'm like, dude, where are we going? It's all good, though. Yes, it is. <laughs> How I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. Your command makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is always with me. I have more insight than all my teachers because your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the elders because I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path in order that might follow your word. I have not turned from your judgments for you yourself have instructed me. How sweet your word is to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. I, <laughs> this morning it was, it was Psalm 31 as I read a psalm each morning and, and it, it struck me marvelously that Psalm 31, as I was reading Psalm 31, I reminded myself as I was holding it in my hand that Jesus had Mary reading this psalm to him or quoting it, more likely. They didn't have scrolls. They didn't carry Bibles around. And in verse 14, I trust in you, Yahweh. I say, you are my God. And the course of my life is in your power. So I entered today believing that. Wherever this goes today, it's not outside your power. I was so, what was that? I would say, that was so sweet to read this morning. Sweet to my taste. Sweeter than honey in my mouth. Because I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every false way. Too often in... God has wonderfully, graciously changed me. Instead of... There's so often... I think Psalm 119 gets used like a cudgel by preachers over a congregation like, see, this is how you ought to be. You should love the Bible like this. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. I don't love the Bible that way. Instead, it's, look at this dude. He's like so happy about the Bible. He's so excited. And it's like someone coming back from the Cheesecake Factory like, you would not believe how many different cheesecakes they have. They were all so good. Let me tell you, here, let me show you some pictures, right? Like, that's what he's doing with like the word. The word is sweet. The word is like honey. The word is valuable. Here's all the things that it does in my life. And, and so the aim of Psalm 119 is your joy. It's your joy. A joy that should be infectious, could be infectious and contagious so that as we listen to his delight in God's word, we would be able to relate and feel the same way. And that is our aim with working through a doctrine of the word of God as the first step in systematic theology. First, that we would delight in the same way over the preciousness and amazing nature of God's word that we have been blessed to hold in our hands. Like we should just, we have to keep reminding ourselves of things that we forget, that it's amazing that God for thousands of years has protected this book, right? I mean, you think, he protected it from Hitler when he was burning all kinds of books, including the Bible. Like, this book has been protected for thousands of years so that at this moment right now, here in front of you, I hold a copy of God's word. He inspired it. He caused it to be written. And he's been protecting it so that we could keep benefiting from it. That's amazing. That's really amazing. We're so blessed. So that's... The first step in systematic theology, the second is that we're studying the doctrine of the word is because we need to build this foundation and have confidence in it because everything else we study this year in this course seminar will flow, I'm just going to keep saying it, will flow from this book. So we've talked already about how God is a God who speaks. He's revealed himself in his son Jesus, who is what? What does John tell us about Jesus? He is what? The word. The word made 
flesh. Yes, yes. And in his word, the Bible. We also considered how both the Old and New Testaments come to us as authoritative revelation from God. We've how it expresses his good rule over us, his good rule over us through this word. Furthermore, that we are his creatures and are thus obligated to believe and obey the scriptures. So now I want to continue by considering the canon of the scriptures, the characteristics of the scriptures, so that we can build our confidence in the scriptures. So first, the canon of scripture. We begin with the canon of scripture because as soon as we posit the authority of scripture, it raises the understandable question of which writings represent God's authoritative revelation. Um, what's the famous book that Dan Brown wrote? Something about the code. The Da Vinci Code, right? Like, and then there's some, I think he's got like two or three more and um, you know, one of them, I think the second one is based on the Gospel of Thomas, for example. So what, what, why, why isn't the Gospel of Thomas in our Bibles could, could be a question that someone might ask us. Especially, that was a lot of conversation going around when the Da Vinci Code was like a number one bestseller. And then the movie came out with Tom Hanks and all the rest of it. This question is a question of canon. Canon is the Greek transliteration of a Semitic word that means measuring read rule or standard and it is an important question what books are gods and represent god's authoritative revelation especially because there are popular myths today in no small part due to documentaries that have been made and disseminated widely that wrongly depict the bible's history like a seedy political drama with backroom deals to get this book in or keep that book out and there is an entirely separate class actually and so there's a whole bunch of classes inside of this core seminar thing that we're trying to do here. One of them is on apologetics, and there's a whole section of that that deals with those kinds of questions about the trustworthiness of scripture and transmission and the faithful copying of biblical manuscripts in the early centuries and translation and translation methodologies and all the rest, but we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to talk about canon, the canon of the Bible. So let's begin with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is traditionally divided into the law, the prophets, and the writings. Though these books were written in different places at different times, a recognition grew in Judaism that the books all belonged together and constituted God's verbal revelation to his people. The picture that we get from early Jewish sources and from the New Testament itself is that the Old Testament canon was simply a settled matter among the Jews of Jesus's day. There's no record of any dispute between Jesus and the other Jews over it, for example. Jesus himself in Luke 24, 44, as we've already heard, refers to the scripture as the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms or the writings, the traditional Hebrew division. He just knew it. He, he knew what that was. It was assumed. He says that each of these sections of the Old Testament pointed to him and was fulfilled by him. Now the Jews had other books, of course, including commentaries on biblical books, but they were never referred to as scripture or the very words of God. Some of these books, such as the Apocrypha, were bound alongside the Greek translation of the Old Testament many hundreds of years later in the 4th century. But even then, early Christians didn't treat them as scripture, but did recognize them as important and helpful writings. And there's all kinds of helpful Jewish writings, wisdom literature, and um, that, that give us, that are accurate historically, they're reliable documents that give us insight into understanding the books of the Old Testament, but are not themselves the very words of God. Uh, yes, there is a Jewish historian, Josephus, and he has, yeah, I mean, many, I've, I haven't read in total, but I, I'm often reading commentary by Josephus in, in study. New Testament canon. What about the New Testament? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. So we, we might be able to say that there's a pattern. In the Old Testament, God acts. He provides interpretations of those actions for us through his written word. And it's the same with the coming of the Messiah in the New Covenant and the New Testament that records the cataclysmic event of his coming and its after effects. God acted by sending his son 
and then provides written interpretation of that action, making connections to what had come before and then all of the implications that come after the coming of Jesus. Some writers give the false impression that the church took an exceedingly long time to recognize the authority of the New Testament documents, pointing to the Council of Carthage in 397 as the date when the final decision was made about which books were in and which were out. But it's important to note that the distinction between recognizing the authority of a book and drawing up a list that includes the book, the latter would have taken some time, especially in the ancient world. And yet the 27 New Testament books have been widely in circulation for centuries and have been treated as scripture from the beginning. It's simply bad history to say that the early Christians had a vast variety of creative beliefs and whole bookshelves full of alternate gospels and texts. The only Christian writings that have been confidently dated to the first century are the books of the New Testament themselves. Yes, a few leaders debated whether a few books were authoritative, mainly letters like Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation. It's not that there isn't some disputation about some of those things, because they have slightly different themes or emphases than Paul's letters, for example. But compared to those writings that did not make it into the New Testament canon, which were roundly rejected without much controversy, these materials that we have in our New Testament are by and large accepted around the Christian world. In fact, if someone were to ask you, how do you know that the biographies of Jesus in the Bible are the oldest, most original documents and that there weren't other stories that were destroyed in some devious political conspiracy. You could respond in a couple of ways. First, you could say that early believers cared very much about the truth and defended in their letters why the books of the New Testament are authoritative. These men had many theological differences and came from different parts of the world, yet we don't see them arguing about the inclusion of different versions and Gnostic versions of the story of Jesus. Second, you could ask if the person asking you about those other texts has actually read those texts and compared them to the texts that we have in the New Testament. Because if you do, if you read them, and I haven't read in detail the other texts, but if you read these other texts, you would see that they're trying to repl replicate the format of the valid biographies, but aim to then present a radically different message. They sound very different. Mm. You can see, to your point, Eric, it, they don't cohere like I would argue, certainly on a, on a basic, simple reading, the others cohere. For example, the Gospel of Peter claims to reveal secret teachings of Jesus that nobody else knows about it, making it abundantly obvious to the most casual observer that it's a response to the true biographies of Jesus and is attempting to get people to disbelieve those true biographies. Now, again, I am not, I am not a scholar of the canon, and I'm a pretty poor historian, honestly, um, and so I'm, I'm not your best source for exactly how all of that played out. But there's some really wonderful, and, and they're not like huge books either. F.F. Um, F. Bruce uh, has written a book called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? Um, and uh, there's one that, a couple that deal with the whole Bible. So Did God Write the Bible by Dan Hayden? And then can, and then just a little guy from R.C. Sproul, uh, Can I Trust the Bible? So that gives you some of those reasons and a little bit more of the historical detail. This, this would probably be my, my number one um, recommendation because it's, it's long enough to give you some of the story. So uh, it has a whole part on investigating the process, uh, revelation, why did God decide to write a book, uh, inspiration, when he wrote a book and how did he do it, collection, who decided which book. So there's you know, um, about 50 pages here on just like how I just did, said it to you very quickly. Um, what did that whole thing look like? Transmission, how do we know that what we have is authentic? Translation, what about all those translations and different versions of the Bible? Um, so if you, if you want to know more about like why do we have, how do we have the book that we have in the Bible, this is a great book. Um, did God Write the Bible by Dan Hayden. I think it's like nine bucks or something. Um, Hayden. H-A-Y-D-E-N. Very accessible book. As Christians, um, okay, just seeing where I'm going to get to. As Christians, we are unafraid to affirm that scripture is self-authenticating. It affirms and testifies to its own truthfulness. 
Yes, we can demonstrate its accuracy by corroborating it with other historical sources, and we should do that, and good historians have. But at the end of the day, it is valid for a Christian to accept Scripture as the Word of God because the Holy Spirit who inspired it testifies to the believer that it is true. Jesus said this, right? Can you remember where he says it? My sheep hear my voice, and they know me. John 10. John 10. So Jesus himself is, is saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hear his voice in this book, and I'm going to know that it's him. That's the gospel, because I was thinking of 2 Timothy 2, 2 or 3, 16. Yeah. Yeah, the one that, yeah, that we've quoted tonight. Amazingly, but not surprisingly, it's common to hear Muslims and other non-Christians say when they read scripture for the first time, this is almost what I would expect a word from God to sound like. Mm -hmm. So how did the early Christians know which writings came from God and which did not? It's important to note that they did not see themselves as choosing or deciding the books of the Bible. Rather, they spoke of receiving or inheriting the authoritative books from each previous generation. They saw these books as having authority because they came from God, not because any church or leader put a stamp of approval on them. They, they didn't just accept them blindly, even though that was true. They had four criteria to, for demonstrating that their acceptance of these books was legitimate. The first criterion was apostolicity. Was a document written by an apostle or someone with immediate contact to an apostle? Only those who knew Jesus or were intimate companions of his disciples could credibly write about the Messiah. The second was antiquity. Even if somebody tried to slap an apostle's name on a book, the book had to be known to originate from the time of the apostles. This is what eliminated so many of the later biographies of Jesus. The third criterion was conformity to the rule of faith or orthodoxy. A book had to ring consistent and conform to the truth already given, either that which was passed down orally or in the biblical books that had begun to spread. Maybe an example would help. It's easy to see why a book like the so-called Gospel of Thomas failed this test. In it, Jesus says he will make Mary a male because women can only enter the kingdom of heaven if they become male, which is totally contradictory to what Paul says about male and female inheriting the kingdom in Galatians, one of the earliest biblical books written. It doesn't have the ring of truth to it and the rule of faith. The fourth criterion was universality. That is widespread and continuous usage by the churches across the known world. What's remarkable from a human perspective is that there was so much agreement on so many books so quickly. So a couple important implications of all of this. First, remember, the church didn't create the Bible by its authority. It's the other way around. The Bible possessed its inherent authority as God's word, and it's that word that brought life to the church. So the church merely recognized what God already inspired. Second, we should not be surprised that the canon closed with the passing of Jesus and the apostles. In the same way it closed with the end of the Old Testament prophetic era in anticipation of Messiah, so it closed with the passing of Messiah as we now await his return. The Old Testament in passages like Malachi 4 and Deuteronomy 18 indicated that there was more prophecy to come. In contrast, the New Testament provides no expectation of additional revelation. In fact, it says the opposite. If you add anything to the words of this book, there's a great destruction that could come to you. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. New Testament, Old Testament. We need no more and should expect no more. We can trust the word that we've received and we should praise God for how he shines his light into our darkness and brings us this word all utterly by his grace. Brian. Um, really quick, uh, this here the uh, early church criteria. It's my understanding that there's no existing record of the Council of Carthage about um, the books, the discussion about which books we probably can and which shouldn't. So uh, this, these four items, where, where do they come from? Do they come from the Council of Trent, which was significantly later? Or what, what's the basis for saying 
that this was the criteria that was used? Uh, that these were the criteria that were used? Yeah, yeah it was, uh, this was in uh, research that I did um, uh, using some curriculum from Capitol Hill Baptist. So I'd have to see, I'd have to look in the bibliography to see, there, there's a bibliography. Um, so I'd have to grab the bibliography to answer that. It's a good question. I'll do that and get it to you. Any other questions? All right, we're going to wrap up for tonight. And next time, we'll talk about five attributes of the word. Sound good? Any other questions before I release you? Claude, would you mind closing us in prayer, please?